Hello everyone, this is Chris Martin with Heterodox Academy. We're here today with Christine Laguerre at the University of Texas at Austin. She is an associate professor of psychology there. Um, she does a lot of work on cultural learning, um, how cultural knowledge is transmitted from older generations to younger generations, as well as from people within societies to other people. Um, even though she's in the psych department, she draws a lot on anthropology and philosophy as well. And she recently won um, an APS award for early career contributions. She's also on the board of the executive board of Heterodox Academy. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to touch on two topics today. The first is about your comment on how improving socioeconomic diversity is essential in the academy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to read a bit about that. And then the second topic is about teaching controversial topics when you're teaching students about psychology and cognition. Right. So, so to start, uh, we celebrated the first anniversary of Heterodox Academy in September of last year. And your comment, I'm just going to read an excerpt. You wrote, the lack of SES diversity within academia presents a formidable challenge to political pluralism and the free exchange of ideas. Many aspects of the academic pipeline perpetuate the lack of SES diversity. Most academic faculty at research institutions come from highly educated middle to high SES backgrounds. And then skipping forward a little bit, the lack of SES diversity leaves faculty ill-prepared to dialogue with students from qualitatively different cultural backgrounds. Students from working class, rural, and conservative political backgrounds often report feeling excluded from academic dialogue. So can you talk a bit about why you thought about this issue? Uh, for a number of different reasons. I mean, my personal background, I come from a working class family. And in navigating higher education, it has been very salient to me that the academy has a long way to go in promoting the um, recruitment and advancement of students who come from working class backgrounds. So I kind of have a personal interest in this. And I think also be, because of, of my, um, my background, I feel a responsibility to advocate and support students who come from similar backgrounds. I mean, I think one of the things that we've learned in social science research in, in recent decades is how important representation is for people. And having a professor who comes from a background similar to students who have working class um, roots is empowering for students. It's something that I have um, I have found in many conversations with working class students that giving them a, a voice and also some sort of a, um, a presence within a field of study, a field of a professional field that many have never considered before. I mean, in order to, to even know that pursuing science and pursuing an academic career isn't even an option, you've got to be aware of this as a um, as a future trajectory for for them. So I, I have that interest. Uh, another thing that I have found in arriving in academia is my very clear awareness that there are very few students who are very few faculty, well, both students and faculty who come from working class backgrounds. So most of the the faculty at universe at elite universities. Um, come from middle class backgrounds or upper middle class backgrounds. And most of the students at elite institutions come from those backgrounds too for, for a number of different reasons. 
So do you ask students to self-identify or do you sort of guess based on clues that they're working class and then have one-on-one -on -one conversations about them, about the relevance of academic life or the possibilities in academia? Yeah, so I, I never ask my students about that overtly. Um, there's certainly no reason that they should feel compelled to identify in any particular way that they um, don't feel comfortable doing. But I do talk about my background. Um, and I talk about how important it is to have people from a great variety of different um, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, um, all kinds of different cultural backgrounds in academia, that diversity is a source of strength. So I don't always talk about diversity in the context of, of socioeconomic status. That's personally most relevant to me. Um, but I talk a lot about how programs that benefit people from diverse backgrounds um, how they are successful and roadblocks that prevent their success. And in fact, the group that has benefited, at least to my knowledge, most from things like affirmative action programs are white women in science. Um, and I, I you know, talk about that quite a lot. I, mean, I think there's a lot of, of uh, misconceptions about what diversity looks like. And most people, when they see a Caucasian woman in a professional occupation or in academia, don't think of me as someone who benefits or has benefited from affirmative action or programs that um, promote diversity, but I absolutely have. Um, I, was in, I was a McDonald's um, or um, a scholar when I was in, um, as an undergraduate and a variety of different programs that I personally participated in are responsible for my, um, my trajectory and my willingness and my ability to get a PhD. I think I can relate to that too. I went to a small liberal arts college and I'm originally from India and I think mm -hmm. they specifically allocated money to give scholarships to foreign students so that there was more international diversity there. Um, right, absolutely. I, I don't think when people look at me either they think of me as uh, someone who's recruited to increase the diversity of the undergrad population but I believe mm -hmm. that was part of the reason for that initiative. So what is UT Austin doing at the moment to increase SES diversity? So they're doing a, a number of different things. Um, one of the things that they uh, they support, um, I was actually part of the, the same program at UCSD when I was an undergraduate, is the McNair Scholars Program. Um, there's a McDonald Scholars Program, but there's also a McNair Scholars Program. And this program is, is designed to increase the number of students who pursue graduate degrees of a variety of different sorts. So the uh, UT Austin supports this program. Um, I actually currently mentor several McNair students myself. There's also a program called the SURE program within psychology and I believe a few other disciplines that have similar goals is to give undergraduate students from diverse backgrounds and this can be diverse in terms of ethnicity and socioeconomic status, some research experience. So th those are specifically targeted towards increasing the pipeline of uh, students who pursue academic careers um, or just pursue careers in, um, in higher education of some sort. We also have a top 10% rule um, in our admission at the University of Texas, which is designed to increase the um, diversity of students um, in a variety of different ways in um, entering the university. So if you are in the top 10% of whatever high school you attended, um, you are guaranteed admission to um, to a University of Texas campus, and so this if this certainly increases the um, the diversity of students coming in. Um, one of the challenges is to retain students who come from these diverse backgrounds and get them through get them successfully through a, a college degree. 
So one of the things that we find is students who, there's enormous, um, as I'm sure you know, educational inequity in high schools, in elementary schools, in Texas, but also throughout the country. So students who come from more under, um, who come from underrepresented or often um, underprivileged backgrounds who aren't attending high schools, for example, that have the same educational rigor and quality as students that are coming from much more well-funded um, areas are um, at a disadvantage in the rigor, often at a disadvantage in the rigor of their educational preparation. And once they are admitted into University of Texas campus, the expectation is that they are going to perform at the same level as, as other students who had far more advantages. Um, often students who come from lower SES backgrounds have to work um, that's an enormous burden in keeping up with very, very rigorous uh, coursework. So one of the we're attempting to do is level the playing field in providing more rigorous training and um, summer training programs that are focused on writing, are, are focused on uh, strengthening mathematical skills that will bring them up to the, um, the kind of same level of students who had a lot more of that training and opportunities in high school. So there's a focus on attempting to do this, but we're not doing as well as we should be doing. And that's something I know the university is, is um, recognizes and is working towards. I've heard that from psychotherapists I've interviewed as well. Some of my research involves interviewing psychotherapists who work at colleges. And they Interesting. Tell me one of the primary stressors for low-income students is the inequality in educational background because there are some students who come from very prestigious high schools who essentially have a year of college during their senior yes. year. They take very advanced courses and that can be very Absolutely. intimidating when you're a low SES student and you've had almost almost no AP courses. And he said one of the challenges is colleges try to make up for that by having remedial programs, but those programs are so short it's hard to get a lot done. So there's still no, a lot true. of stress for low SES students. Absolutely. So there, I mean, there's the issue of, um, you know, a, a summer, an intensive summer program not being sufficient. It's clearly better than nothing. But a lot of these programs are contingent upon um, providing financial support for students as well. Many students aren't in a position where they can just take the summer off and take these courses in the first place. So even aside from them not being sufficient, um, there, it, there are major issues with uh, students having enough resources to even participate in programs of that sort. Um, and you know, full load of college coursework is, is daunting even without ha having to work 20 to 30 hours a week and just in order to, to you know, provide for basic necessities. So this is a, a kind of multi-pronged approach is clearly necessary to provide sufficient support for students who haven't had the same opportunities. And also to increase awareness among students and faculty who came from backgrounds with far more resources um, to recognize that these things are really important. Right? If you've not had the experience of someone from a different background, you're not necessarily aware that actually the, the playing field is not equal, that students are not coming in with the same opportunities, that that is, um, uh, is you know, deeply ignorant and a function of you know, kind of lack of perspective of people who come from very different backgrounds. Right. And another thing you mentioned in your comment for our first anniversary was that it actually increases the political diversity too because right. working class families tend to be relatively centrist or conservative. Um, and I found too in my own research, working there's 
their contrasts. So even if you look just at Democrats, Democratic voters, um, the cultural right. attitudes of working class Democrats are actually quite different from the attitudes of upper class, highly educated Democrats. So can you talk oh, a bit about? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can talk, yeah. Can you talk a bit about how you've seen uh, cultural diversity improve? The politically speaking, um, viewpoint diversity improve. Sure. So. I mean, a couple of things to say about that. In in my own personal background, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working class, but I come from a you know a very um, a kind of traditional democratic working class family. Um, it was also religious. I was raised Catholic, and so this um, this kind of stereotype of rural working class people being conservative and um, conservative and religious. These things don't always have to cluster together. I mean, I think there's quite a lot of diversity on those fronts, and the awareness that that we have about this variation, I think, is is um, is fairly limited. But it is true that, especially, it, I mean, it also depends on the, the region of the country that you're working in. So right. in in Texas, because we are we are servicing students uh, from this, you know, the entire South, but focally um, from Texas we get an enormously diverse student population. And it is true that a lot of our rural students uh, tend to come from more conservative backgrounds, but it's also true that our, some of our much more highly educated students or students that come from much more highly educated backgrounds also tend to be more conservative. So it's, it's actually working in Texas has been a, a really unique opportunity to look at us, the kind of a spectrum of more students from more urban versus rural backgrounds and how conservative and um, more liberal politics play out in a variety of different ways and, and intersections. Uh, but, and one of the things that I do in my classes is provide people with an opportunity to discuss these sorts of uh, dynamics. I mean, one of the things that I found in, in classroom discussions uh, with my research assistants, but also just students taking my classes, is, a, is an enormous dissatisfaction with the degree to which our government is promoting the, the needs and the concerns, addressing the concerns of the working class. Right? People are aware that people living in rural areas um, from more working class backgrounds across ethnic um, boundaries are struggling mightily. That's true in Texas. That's true throughout most of the country. Um, there has been an insufficient, um, uh, I think, focus across the political spectrum on the challenges that this particular group is facing with globalization and mass changes in our economy. And a lot of the students that, that I've spoken with talk quite a bit about that, that there's frustration about growing income inequality and lack of resources um, to kind of promote the economic development of of rural areas. So this is something that's very salient part of everyday student dialogue and student conversation. Okay, well, I think income inequality is a nice segue into the next topic, which is controversial topics in the classroom. You mentioned that you recently, very recently, specifically right. taught about a number of controversial issues in a class on culture and cognition. Could you talk a bit right. about how you integrated that into the class material? Sure. So I, I taught a course, it was actually on the cognitive science of religion, Sorry. which tracks students across a, a great variety of different um, political persuasions. So I had students take the class who were, uh, were atheists and found the fact that anyone would believe in a religion completely baffling. I also had Catholic missionaries take the course, um, people who come from evangelical Christian backgrounds. So the, the um, religiosity of my class varied enormously. 
the, uh, the, the kind of social class background of, of students in my class also varied quite a bit. And it was a wonderful opportunity to kind of tackle a lot of these kind of thorny issues. I mean, religion is in, kind of inherently um, thorny in terms of the implications for um, um, social policy and um, all kinds of different beliefs concerning the right way for humans to conduct them themselves, the degree to which the, um, the government should be involved in legislating different sorts of things. So it was a great place to really um, practice uh, having these more um, controversial dialogues, which is, I would argue, what we're supposed to be doing in higher education. So it's just one example. Um, I assigned uh, John Hyde's Righteous Mind book because uh, it's a great way to talk about religion and politics, which the students were absolutely fascinated by. So you signed um, the entire book? What's that? Did you sign the entire book? We read the entire book, every okay. word of it. <laughs> yeah, and the okay. students absolutely loved it. And so one of the, the things that I had them do as assignment for this book was to use moral foundations theory to present arguments for and against teaching creationism in science classrooms. And the, the, the way the students were, were graded in this particular assignment was the, the extent to which both sides of that argument were equally persuasive. And so it was an art. It was an opportunity to um, to practice presenting both sides of an argument, including inside of an argument that that many students um, uh, very very um, forcefully disagreed with. Right. So I wasn't I wasn't ar um, arguing that we should teach creationism in science classrooms. I absolutely don't think that we should. Uh, um, but I do think that it's an, a useful opportunity to accurately. Um, represent and convey beliefs that are very different from your own. And students struggled with this a little bit, but really embraced it and took this on and gathered data from all kinds of different sources. They kind of spontaneously interviewed friends of theirs that were kind of young earth creationists. And it was really fascinating the, um, the extent to which they embraced this as a challenging and exciting uh, assignment. Um, but that's, I think, I think an incredibly useful skill. As as a college student, you should learn how to present the perspectives of other people. So if you were to give advice to a young professor out there who wants to talk about these topics but is scared of broaching them or scared of coming up with confronting students who have a very different viewpoint from their own, what advice would you give? I think there's a couple things I would recommend. One is that I view my role as an educator to reach students from all backgrounds. So my goal is not just to reinforce the beliefs of students that already think exactly the way that I do. Um, my goal is, is to present them with a great variety of different perspectives and to have an intelligent and respectful dialogue. So a, a big part of, of, of getting students to participate is giving them the impression that the that you respect their perspectives enough to hear them through that this is a space where um, different viewpoints are um, are encouraged but it's also a space where everyone has to be respectful that if you want people to listen to you you need to listen to them and not just give them a, a 
a, a kind of pause in a conversation to say something, but to genuinely hear what they have to say. Uh, if you model that sort of dialogue in a classroom, students will do the same sort of thing. And the, the feedback that I got from this particular class was that this was an entirely different educational experience than these students had ever had before. Not just because it was an opportunity to talk about the evolution of religion and where religion comes from and what religion does in human society, because uh, people are in, you know, deeply interested in, in religion. Most Americans are religious, and even if you're not religious, understanding why most people are, I think is, or many people are, I think is, is interesting. So it wasn't just interesting because of the content, it was interesting because we had topics that students, we had conversations about topics students already spend a huge amount of their own time thinking about in a, um, in a respectful space. So modeling that sort of thing I think is, is essential. Um, and, and not being judgmental, being respectful but not judgmental. And do you think having them read the book before they brought these topics up was helpful so that they had some way of seeing why people from different perspectives would, would disagree with them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was, I think it was very, very helpful. I mean, keep in mind, that was the, the second book that we read. The first book that we read was on, um, was R. Noren Zion's Big Gods book, which is all about the evolution of religion, which is quite a very, it's a very different way to think about religion than the way most religious people do. So thinking about it in a, um, a much bigger picture sense, certainly introducing the possibility that he, that religion is something that's created by by humans um, all these things are you know so we started out with controversy day one mm -hmm. and I made clear when I go in you know when I start the class and it's in the syllabus that this is what um, this is what we're gonna do in this class this is all about a um, really developing a 360 degree bullshit detector which is my goal for all my students in all my classes that we're gonna tackle these issues and we're gonna have intelligent discussions and sometimes this might be a little bit difficult um, but that's what you're 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 here to do you're here to think about the world in in new ways and it's not my objective to force my perspective upon you my goal is to introduce you to a variety of different ways of thinking about the world and if some of that changes your mind, if conversations with other intelligent people change the way you think, if you change the way other people think, then we have succeeded in some way. Right? So this is, I make it very clear, that this is not a, a kind of top-down transmission of my ideas into your minds. Right? This is bi-directional, this is a group-level process, and I know students learned as much from other students in the class as they did from me. That's, this is a wonderful thing about having a discussion-oriented class is you benefit from more than just the instructor. So there were particularly techniques you used to encourage discussion in a friendly way as opposed to a confrontational way? So we do we do a variety of different things. One is that um, one is that I model techniques in how to have a productive conversation. I think it's also very helpful to have a, um, a kind of warm and Oh, interpersonal rapport. So I spend a, you know spend a lot of time in office hours with students. Um, at the very beginning of the semester, I have them all come and see me in my office, and having that personal connection, even if it's a, a fairly small connection, I think opens opens people's minds up, but also reduces their defensiveness. So the more they can see me as another person who respects them and is kind of interested in who they are, the more they're going to trust me. 
And when I, I kind of push back on one of their ideas, I'm going to say, oh, maybe she has an idea, maybe she has a point there. Uh, this isn't necessarily a kind of personal attack on me by someone I don't know and don't trust. So we do, we do lots of, of, of uh, one-on-one -on -one conversations, small group discussions, in addition to a large group discussion. So it's not, we don't necessarily start out the course with tons of, of um, kind of controversial big class discussions. We kind of ease into that more, more gradually. And by the end of the semester, a huge portion of, of our time is just having a full class discussion about the topics. Um, another very interesting thing we did in this class is based on the, the kind of big gods book is the students in groups constructed their own religion based on the kind of big gods principles, which they absolutely loved. They, they were mm -hmm. so excited about this. They spontaneously mm -hmm. met outside of class. Um, they came up with complex algorithms for religions. There were lots of big goddesses that were very popular um, <laughs> in, in this assignment. So mm -hmm. having a, introducing some creativity and innovation and intrigue into a class, I think is, it can be really game changing. And students just enjoy it so much. So do instructors. Mm -hmm. Like myself. <laughs> yeah. I teach a course on the sociology of happiness, and I broached the issue of religion and why religiosity has waned in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I tend to show them uh, excerpts from a Christian Smith lecture because he does a lot of survey work on declines in religiosity, particularly among Protestants and Catholics, and he's a practicing Catholic himself. So he's very critical of the idea that religion and science are at war with each other. He calls that the inherent warfare model, and he's very he's very critical of that model. And right, I, and that's a totally yeah. destructive and unnecessary model. Uh, people, one of the things that I have actually studied in my own research is how um, how good people are at integrating different kinds of explanations at different levels of causality. So, in the human mind, integrating religious and scientific explanations for things like biological origins is no problem at all. I mean, theistic evolution is all about kind of pushing God back a bit in a distal sort of way and putting evolution in a more, as a more proximate mechanism. There's lots of ways that people reconcile scientific and religious explanations. So we talk, we talk quite a bit about that. There's no need to introduce um, or exacerbate the kind of cultural warfare that we're seeing going on. So a, a big part of my goal in this particular class was to present a different model of how people could um, could dialogue about these sorts of topics. We also, another thing I want to mention is, in addition to modeling constructive ways to have a dialogue, I also model a few examples of um, bad practice, if you want to put it that way, or yeah. ways not to have a constructive dialogue. Uh, so well, there are saying if you can't be a good if you can't be a good example, be a terrible warning. So, <laughs> yeah. so there were a few terrible warnings there. Um, in, in some case and I, I used examples of both um, very religious people uh, as well as atheists and ways in which people from both of those camps did a good and a bad job. At, um, at reaching others. And, and, and I also use this as an opportunity to talk about how particular styles of argumentation are, um, are not persuasive. They're meant basically to further endear you to people who already think the way that you do. And that's kind of psychologically satisfying for people, but that's not constructive. That's not useful. So when you get a 
famous atheist scientists going on and on and on about how stupid religious people are. His goal is definitely not to convert. His goal is not to persuade. Um, that's a, I mean, from a, a persuasion perspective, uh, that is entirely ineffective. In fact, I would say destructive. So we had an opportunity to, to, to discuss um, good and bad ways to present your information and the degree to which persuasion is what you're attempting to do. Or, or just education. It doesn't necessarily even have to be persuasion. It could just be presenting your information in the most effective, accessible way possible. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a fascinating course. Um, one of the things that I could do is maybe post a copy of your course syllabus if you put it on, if it's online. I could share sure. a link in the notes to this YouTube video. And um, yeah, yeah I'll, I should do that. As well Absolutely. as links to the books you mentioned, Norrin Zion's book and Jonathan Haidt's book, of course. And add links to those as well. Um, yeah. well. I'd like to wrap up now. Uh, any final thoughts or comments? I think that my, my final comment would be um, one of, of optimism. So I, I've certainly found in, in my courses that students are much more receptive to diverse ideas than um, I think they're often portrayed um, to be in popular media. Uh, a lot of the experiences that I've had in discussing thorny political topics have been extremely positive and that students have been quite grateful and enthusiastic about that opportunity uh, and that this didn't devolve into chaos or um, negative affect, just the opposite. Uh, so there, it, it's not to say that there isn't skill associated with having constructive dialogues, uh, but I think that we've been overly cautious in avoiding potentially controversial topics and there's I think no reason for that um, that it, this can be done productively with um, excellent educational outcomes I think on that topic I think one thing that's affecting culture now the culture of academia is that sometimes a professor will hear about another professor who got in trouble for teaching a controversial topic and they'll generalize from that and assume that it's a very risky thing to do. So it's good to have that optimistic perspective and realize that students consider these courses some of the best courses they've ever taken. I think it's important no, that, to, to it's see the true. value there. It's true, but there has to be a deep level of respect in having these dialogues. So I think one of the, the ways in which this can go sideways is if students don't feel, they don't feel respected and they don't feel that the instructor is as truly open to diverse perspectives. I mean, if the, the only way these things work is students have to know that you are open to having your mind changed too. So, I right. mean, that's, I think there's a kind of humility that is required in having these conversations um, for them to be maximally productive. Uh, and there could definitely be more, um, more emphasis on educating faculty about how to lead discussions of this particular type, not just as they relate to political diversity, um, but just kind of controversial topics more, um, more generally. I mean, the, our goal is to produce a more educated, enlightened citizenry. That's what yeah. I'm attempting to do. <laughs> more right. than to transmit any particular type of content. Uh, I want students to be critical thinkers, to be engaged. I think one of the things that inadvertently has happened in recent generations is this great aversion to politics, a sense that it's 
it's a nasty business and that it's the responsibility of others. This, uh, this has been extremely destructive. Uh, we see this in voter turnout, getting students and young people engaged in the political process, engaged in the future of the country and the future of the global economy. And um, all of those things are a big part of what universities should be doing. Uh, and, and that's another thing I attempt to do in my classes. Great. Well, maybe uh, six months down the road or a year down the road, we can have a conversation about how Great. exactly for, to train professors to, uh, to do a good job at this. But thank yeah. you for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was lovely to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye.